Wake up. Freedom's on the rise. Rising billionaires has been, you know, unprecedented during the pandemic. And there's been several sectors where that has been mostly concentrated. And one is, in fact, the pharma sector, because COVID has been one of the most um, profitable products ever. So that's um, uh, one point to discuss. In, and our report out today is called Profiting from Pain. How th- those delays in in making this technology available and um, really having people vaccinated early has contributed to that. But has also, as was said earlier, it's not only the direct health um, impacts, but it's the economic, social um, impacts on all parts of the population. And in reality, an increase in inequality, reversing the trend of the last few years where you know inequality had reduced between rich countries and poor countries. Unfortunately, now it has widened. And, and the, the statistic we're saying is every 30 hours, um, a new billionaire was minted during the pandemic. You've invested $10 billion in vaccinations over the last two decades, and you figured out the return on investment for that. And it kind of stunned me. Can you walk us through the math? Well, it's pretty impressive that when you take these vaccines, uh, get them to be very inexpensive by making big volume commitments, have that right relationship with the private sector, uh, get the delivery system so they're really getting the coverage out there, you literally saved millions of lives. You know, we see a, a phenomenal track record. It's been $100 billion overall that the world's put in. Our foundation uh, is a bit more than $10 billion, uh, but we feel there's been over a 20 to 1 return. So if you just look at the economic benefits, uh, that's a pretty strong number compared to anything else. The human benefit uh, in millions of lives saved. So, you know, we're here with a pretty strong message that uh, although all these other issues are very important, let's not forget about the great success in global health and maintaining that commitment. I think the numbers that you ran through were if you had put that money into an S&P 500 and reinvested the dividends, you'd come up with something like $17 billion, but you think it's $200 billion. Here, yeah. Rising billionaires has been you know, unprecedented during the pandemic. And there's been several sectors where that has been mostly concentrated. And one is, in fact, the pharma sector, because COVID has been one of the most um, profitable products ever. So because COVID has been one of the most um, profitable products ever. So as World War Three continues to develop, we now see new alliances being formed with Russia and China promising to combat the United States and their alleged biolabs that are being housed in Ukraine. This is what it sounded like when the Russian foreign minister announced what they had found and what they're going to be doing about it. Turning to the situation related to biological laboratories in Ukraine. Uh-oh. We commented on this yesterday. Yeah. And I would like to mention just the main points uh, by the Russian MFA. Okay. Main points. We confirm. Confirm it. Come on facts that uh, were found during the special military operation that confirm the Kiev regime attempted to cover up biological Uh-oh. programs traces as implemented cover by up. Kiev and financed by the United States of America. Uh-oh, we have biolabs that are being financed by the United States and are being covered up by the Kiev regime of, I guess, Nazis or whatever they're calling them. And that's just the tip of the spear. These weren't biolabs, according to the Russian minister, that were being used for peaceful purposes or just for research. These had no domestic purposes at all. There was no peaceful use whatsoever, no research use whatsoever intended for the 
okay. good of peace. They were financed from the U.S. Ministry of Defense. And the U.S. paid for it. And so we can see that the Russian Ministry of, of Foreign Affairs has been, you know, kind of communicating a lot of this for quite some time. This the is what they posted on Twitter. You can see here, MFA spokeswoman Zakharova on military biological activity in biological laboratories says, quote, during special military operations in Ukraine, the Kiev regime was found to have been concealing traces of military in their biological program implemented with funding from the U.S., and so this is something that they actually posted on their website as a press release. And we can go through this and detail a little bit more about what they're claiming happened here. They say, we confirm that during a special military operation in Ukraine, the Kiev regime was found to have been concealing, seen a lot of that. But what's interesting about this is they give us some details on what they claim that they have found in the name of the different uh, viral concoctions or bacterial concoctions or a whole plethora of different bad things. The plague you can see here, anthrax, we've got rabbit fever, cholera, lethal diseases on February 24th. All of these received from employees of Ukrainian bio laboratories. And they say that this included instruction from the Ministry of Health of Ukraine on the urgent eradication of stored reserves of highly hazardous pathogens that were sent to all the bio labs. And they go over and they say you can find a lot of this stuff on our Ministry of Defense on the Russian Federation. And this carries on, says that this documentation is going to be analyzed by specialists of nuclear, biological, and chemical protection troops. And they say, however, even at this point, we can conclude that the components of these weapons were being developed in labs in Ukraine in direct proximity to Russian territory. And they say the urgent Expo, uh, I'm sorry, eradication was ordered to prevent exposing a violation of Article 1 and the different agreements of which Ukraine and NATO are a part of. So in other words, I think they're implying that once this became uh, known that they were going to be invading, there was a, an urgent move to go and try to eradicate these specimens before the Russians got their hands on them. The information proves that the claims we have repeatedly made, they say, is true. And they say we cannot rule out using the mechanisms of other parameters to investigate violations under the Biological and Toxins uh, Weapons Conventions Act. This wraps up, we see here, decisive actions to, strength, to strengthen this regime are required to prevent any activity from being carried out, to strengthen the foundation. And they go on saying we're going to you know, promote and uh, work towards increasing the, the strength of the framework to stop the biological weapons program. So they're kind of using the same tool that the United States was using, uh, sort of you know relying on these international treaties and agreements to say, well, we're just going to rely on those agreements to sort of uh, maintain international order. We heard a lot of that from the Biden administration for a long time, saying that, you know, uh, we're going to support our partners and our uh, NATO allies all the time while sort of you know moving just a, a small pittance of troops from location to location, nothing really substantive going on there, said a lot of it was all bark and no bite. And this wraps up, we see here, we've got one final addition. In addition, they're suggesting, sort of browbeating other people who are part of uh, the BTWC, the member states to also participate, you know, in, in doing things like they're doing there in, in the Russia, saying only comprehensive steps like these are going to make it possible to move past all of this. And they're going to say to place the military activity of the U.S. 
and other people in their regions make sure that they're comporting with their uh, obligations under this international agreement. And Russia now is being joined by China just to make sure that we have an entire sort of grouping of communism and death. These two are going to be paired up. And we can see that the Chinese came out. Spokesman here is reporting, says, follow us to know more about China's diplomacy. You can see YouTube, Facebook, Instagram all linked up here. This is a China government official, spokesperson at MFA China. And what we can see that they're telling us the U.S. has 336 labs in 30 countries all under its control. And they're telling us, including 26 in Ukraine alone, saying it should give full account of its biological military activities at home, abroad, and subject itself to multilateral verification. And all of this is coming from spokesmen from the MFA uh, officially on Twitter, and this is what it sounded like when he made this announcement. Recently, the U.S. biological labs in Ukraine have indeed attracted much attention. According to reports, in these facilities, a large quantity of dangerous of viruses are stored. Russia has found during its military operations that the U.S. uses these facilities to conduct military plans. According to data released by the U.S., it has 26 labs in Ukraine. The U.S. has 336 labs in 30 countries under its control. The U.S. has also conducted many biological military activities in Fort Detrick. What is the true intention of the U.S.? What has it done specifically? The international community has long held doubts. Once again, we urge the U.S. to give a full account of its biomilitary activities at home and abroad and accept multilateral verification. Do you believe these people? So this guy, the same organization, the same Communist Chinese Party, who were very much uh, opposed and adversarial to the World Health Organization and many other people who wanted to go in there and poke around at the labs there in Wuhan, didn't get much cooperation from the Chinese. And so now the very first opportunity they get to jump on the bandwagon that the Russians have started on claiming that there's all these biological weapons labs in Ukraine, which may or may not be true, I don't know. But they are going to be saying that uh, we want a full and open investigation into what you're doing because they don't want you to look at what they're doing. So we see this new alliance forming between Russia and China certainly feels concerning, certainly feels sort of uh, familiar, like the pretext of uh, other problematic alliances throughout this world's history. I want to hear from you. What do you think about all this? Are you concerned that this is the beginning of an Axis power? Let me know down in the comments. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this video with a friend or family member. Invite them to come join us on the next one. I look forward to seeing you there. Dr. Fauci, we don't know whether the pandemic started in a lab in Wuhan or evolved naturally, but we should want to know. Three million people have died from this pandemic, and that should cause us to explore all possibilities. Instead, government authorities, self-interested in continuing gain-of-function research, say there's nothing to see here. Gain-of-function research, as you know, is juicing up naturally occurring animal viruses to infect humans. To arrive at the truth, the U.S. government should admit that the Wuhan Virology Institute was experimenting to enhance the coronavirus's ability to infect humans. Juicing up super viruses is not new. Scientists in the U.S. have long known how to mutate animal viruses to infect humans. For years, 
Dr. Ralph Barrick, a virologist in the U.S., has been collaborating with Dr. Shi Zengli of the Wuhan Virology Institute, sharing his discoveries about how to create super viruses. This gain-of-function research has been funded by the NIH. The collaboration between the U.S. and the Wuhan Virology Institute continues. Doctors Barrick and Shi worked together to insert bat virus spike protein into the backbone of the deadly SARS virus, and then use this man-made supervirus to infect human airway cells. Think about that for a moment. The SARS virus had a 15% mortality. We're fighting a pandemic that has about a 1% mortality. Can you imagine if a SARS virus that's been juiced up and had viral proteins added to it, to the spike protein, if that were released accidentally? Dr. Fauci, do you still support funding of the NIH funding of the lab in Wuhan? Senator Paul, with all due respect, you are entirely and completely incorrect that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Do they fund Dr. Barrick? We do not fund. Do you fund gain, Dr. Barrick's gain of function research? D- Dr. Barrett does not doing gain of function research, and if it is, it's according to the guidelines, and it is being conducted in North Carolina. Not you don't think inserting in a bat virus spike protein that he got from the Wuhan Institute into the SARS virus is gain of function? That is you would not be in the minority because. At least 200 scientists have signed a statement from the Cambridge Working Group saying that it is gain of function. Well, it is not. And if you look at the grant and you look at the uh, progress reports, it is not gain of function, despite the fact that people tweet that. So do you still support sending money to the Wuhan Virology Institute? We do not send money now to the the Wuhan uh, Virology Institute. support sending money? We did, under your tutelage. We were sending it through EcoHealth. It was a sub-agency and a sub-grant. Do you support the money from NIH that was going to the Wuhan Institute? Let me explain to you why that was done. The SARS-CoV-1 originated in bats in China. It would have been irresponsible of us if we did not investigate the bat viruses and the serology to see who might have been or, infected Or perhaps it would be irresponsible China. to send it to the Chinese government that we may not be able to trust with this uh, knowledge and with this uh, incredibly dangerous viruses. Government scientists like yourself who favor gain-of-function research... I don't favor gain-of-function research in China. You are saying things that are not correct. Government defenders of of gain-of-function, such as yourself, say that COVID-19 mutations were random and not designed by man. But interestingly, the technique that Dr. Barrick developed forces mutations by serial passage through cell culture that the mutations appear to be natural. In fact, Dr. Barrick named the technique the noceum technique because the mutations appear naturally. Nicholas Baker in the New York Magazine said, nobody would know if the virus had been fabricated in a laboratory or grown in nature. Government authorities in the U.S., including yourself, unequivocally deny that COVID-19 could have escaped a lab. But even Dr. Xi in Wuhan wasn't so sure. According to Nicholas Baker, Dr. Xi wondered, could this new virus have come from her own laboratory? She checked her records frantically and found no matches. 
That really took a load off my mind, she said. I had not slept for days. The director of the gain-of-function research in Wuhan couldn't sleep because she was terrified that it might be in her lab. Dr. Barrick, an advocate of gain-of-function research, admits the main problem that the Institute of Virology has is the outbreak occurred in close proximity. What are the odds? Barrick responded, could you rule out a laboratory escape? The answer in this case is probably not. Will you, in front of this group, categorically say that the COVID-19 could not have occurred through serial passage in a laboratory? I do not have any accounting of what the Chinese may have done, and I'm fully in favor of any further investigation of what went on in China. However, I will repeat again, the NIH and NIAID categorically has not funded gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You do support it in the U.S. We have 11 labs doing it, and you have allowed it here. We have a committee to do it, but the committee has granted every exemption. You're, you're fooling with Mother Nature here. You're allowing super viruses to be created with a 15% mortality. It's very dangerous. I think it was a huge mistake to share this with China, and it's a huge mistake to allow this to continue in the United States. And we should be very careful to investigate where this virus came from. I fully agree that you should investigate where the virus came from. But again, we have not funded gain-of-function research on this virus in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, no matter you're how parsing many times words, you're parsing you say words. it, there it was didn't research, happen. There was research done with Dr. Xi and Dr. Barrick. They have collaborated on gain-of-function research where they enhanced the SARS virus to infect human airway cells, and they did it by merging a new spike protein on it. That is gain-of-function. That was joint research between the Wuhan Institute and Dr. Barrick, you can't deny it. Senator Paul, your time, time has expired. Dr. Fauci, I will let you respond to that. We need to move on. Excuse me? You're, I will allow you to respond to that, and then we'll move on. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say, we, I, I don't know how many times I can say it, Madam Chair. We did not fund gain-of-function research to be conducted in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Thank you. Senator Smith. Dr. Fauci, the government recommends uh, everybody take a booster over age five. Are you aware of any studies that show reduction in hospitalization or death for children who take a booster? Right now, there's not enough data that has been accumulated, Senator Paul, to indicate that that's the case. The, I believe that the recommendation that was made was based on the assumption that if you look at the morbidity and mortality of children within each of the age groups, you know, zero so, to five, five to 11. Right. So, so, let's, so there, there are no studies, and Americans should all know this, there are no studies on children showing a reduction in hospitalization or death with taking a booster. The only studies that were permitted, the only studies that were presented were antibody studies. So they say, if we give you a booster, you make antibodies. Now, a lot of scientists would question whether or not that's proof of efficacy of a vaccine. If I give you 10, or if I give a patient 10 mRNA vaccines and they make protein each time or they make antibody each time, is that proof that we should give 10 boosters, Dr. Fauci? Uh, no, I think that is somewhat of an absurd exaggeration. 
Senator well, that is Paul. the proof that you use. Your committees use that. That's the only proof you have to tell children to take a booster is that they make antibodies. So it's not right. an there absurdity. Are. You're already no. at like five boosters for people. You've had, you know, two or three boosters. It's like, where is the proof? Now, I think there is yeah. probably some indication for older folks that have some risk factors. For younger folks, there's not. But here's the other yeah. thing. There are some risk factors for, for the vaccine. So the risk of myocarditis with a second dose for adolescent boys, 12 to 24, is about 80 in a million. This is both from the CDC and from the Israeli study. It's also in the VAR study, remarkably similar for boys, much higher from boys than girls and much higher than the background. The background's about two per million. So there is risk and there are risks. And you're telling everybody in America just blindly go out there because we made antibodies. So it is not an absurd corollary to say if you have 10. In fact, you probably make antibodies if you get 100 boosters. All right? That's not science. That's conjecture. And we should not be making public policy on it. So, Senator Paul, if I might respond to that, uh, we just heard in his opening statement uh, ranking member Burr talk about his staff who went to Israel. And if you look at the data from Israel, the boosts, both the third shot boost and the fourth shot boost, was associated with a clear-cut clinical effect, mostly in elderly people, but also as they gathered more data, even in people in the 40s and the 50s. So there is clinical data. But, but not in children. Well, uh, well, see, again, here's the thing is, you're not willing to be honest with the American people. So, for example, 75% of kids have had the disease. Why is the CDC not including this in the data? You can ask the right. question. You can do laboratory tests to find out who's had it and who hasn't had the disease. What is the incidence of hospitalization and death for children who've been infected with COVID subsequently going to the hospital or dying. What, what, are the, what is the possibility if your kid has had COVID, which is 75% of the country's had COVID, what is the chance that my child's going to the hospital or dying? If you look at the number of deaths in pediatrics, Senator, you can see that there are more deaths of people who have had it, of people who have had the disease. Uh, Senator, we also know from other studies that the optimal degree of protection when you get infection is to get vaccinated after infection. And in fact, showing reinfection in the era of Omicron and the sublineages, that vaccination... But you can't answer the question I asked. The question I ask is how many kids are dying and how many kids are going to the hospital who've already had COVID? The answer may be zero, but you're not even giving us the data because you have so much wanted to protect Everybody from all the data, because we're not smart enough to look at the data. When you release data earlier, when the CDC released the data, they left out the category of 18 to 49 on whether or not there was a health benefit for, for adults 18 to 49. Why was it left out? When critics finally complained, it was finally included because there was no health benefit from taking a booster between the 18 to 49 and the CDC study. Another question for you. The NIH continues to refuse to voluntarily divulge the names of scientists who receive royalties and from which companies. Over the period of time from 2010 to 2016, 27,000 royalty payments were paid to 1,800 NIH employees. We know that not because you told us, but because we forced you to tell us through the Freedom of Information Act. 
Over $193 million was given to these 18 employee, 1,800 employees. Can you tell me that you have not received a royalty from any entity that you ever oversaw the distribution of money in research grants? Um, well, first of all, let's talk about royalty. That's the question. No, that's the question. Have you oh, ever no, overseen, Senator, have you ever received a royalty playing. payment from a company that you later oversaw money going to that company? You know, I don't know as a fact, but I doubt it. Well, well here's the thing is, why don't you let us know? Why don't you reveal uh, how much you've gotten and from what entities? The NIH okay, refuses. Senator, Look, Senator. we ask them. We ask them. The NIH, we ask them whether or not who got it and how much. They refuse right. to tell us. They sent it redacted. Here's what I want to know. It's not just about you. Everybody on the vaccine committee, have any of them ever received money from the people who make vaccines? Right. Can you tell me uh, that? Can you tell me if anybody on the vaccine approval committees ever received gonna, any money from people who make the vaccine? Are you going to let me answer a question? Soundbite number one, are you going to let me answer a question? Okay, so let me give you some information. First of all, according to the regulations, people who receive royalties are not required to divulge them, even on their financial statement, according to the Bayh-Dole Act. So let me give you some example. From 2000. 15 to 2020, I, the only royalties I have was my lab and I made a monoclonal antibody for use in vitro reagent that had nothing to do with patients. And during that period of time, my royalties ranged from $21 a year to $7,700 a year. And the average per year was $191.46. It's all redacted, it's all redacted and you can't get any information on the 1800 Senator scientists. Paul, your, your time is so we want to know Senator whether or not Paul. people got money from the people who made the manufacturing. Senator Paul, vaccine. your time is long over expired. I gave you an additional two and a half minutes. The witness has responded. We are going to move on. Senator Sanders. This mistakes a failure of diplomacy, a failure to negotiate, a very harsh line against China, which is completely contrary to the actual needs of the planet because we need cooperation everywhere. An us versus them mentality, so everybody is divided. Are you on our side or are you on the other side? We cannot function this way because every challenge we face is not about us versus them. COVID was not us versus them. It wasn't about vaccine nationalism. It wasn't about uh, accusations. It was about getting a pandemic under control. I'll add one provocative statement. We could take it up later. It may shock you or not shock you, or you may say, I already know that, Professor Sachs. But I chaired a commission for the Lancet for two years on COVID. I'm pretty convinced it came out of uh, US lab biotechnology, not out of nature. Just to mention, after two years of intensive work on this. So it's a blunder, in my view, of biotech, not an accident of a natural spillover. We don't know for sure, I should be absolutely clear but there's enough evidence that it should be looked into and it's not being investigated, not in the United States, 
not anywhere. And I think for real reasons that they don't want to look underneath the uh, uh, un underneath the uh, the rug too much. Well, that got us into a tremendous mess. Now we have a war that could have been avoided. It would have been avoided if the United States had not been so insistent on pushing NATO eastward and eastward and eastward. Welcome back to Freedom's Rising, episode number 28. Today is July 19th, 2022, and we are in the BioSci War Barrage, part 2. Wake up! Freedom's on the rise. And you are participating in the rise of freedom, and we are freeing more minds here today with Freedom's Rising.live, the 24-7 live stream project that I launched back in June 2021, and we took some time to work on that over the last year, brought back the Freedoms Rising series, launched that actually, and brought back the work from TylerBoyer.com, and we are continuing now into the BioSci War, and these are part one and two of the BioSci War Barrage, but on the TylerBoyer.com website, you can find the category uh, BioSci War. You can also find on the front page just the big image there that says BioSci War. Click on that and find the whole series of the BioSci War that we've done. If you try to go to YouTube or something like that, you'll see a playlist, but that playlist has holes in it. There are videos that were taken down. So we suggest to use Odyssey, to use BitChute, to use Float, to use these other technologies to follow Freedoms Rising and Tyler Bloyer, uh, myself. Tyler Bloyer is the name that I go under on those channels. And then uh, also find the links in the show notes where you can hop into the tylerbloyer.com Discord server. I'd like to have more of a community-sourced, driven uh, data stream driving through the Discord. For now, that's where we're at. Uh, there's a Telegram for Freedoms Rising. There's a Discord for Freedoms Rising. But probably the most active place, which is sort of uh, tumbleweedish actually is the tylerbloyer.com Discord server, but you can still find me there and still uh, be able to communicate, drop links. I'm not going to get into an argument. I'm not big on debating or uh, getting into chat, heated chat discussions and things like that. So, uh, but more the open source community resource uh, research projects that we could start and we people can participate by sharing their knowledge on the BioSci War, and those clips can even make it into the BioSci War stream. Because that's what we're doing here is <clears throat> we are doing coverage from the front lines and documenting aspects of the BioSci War. So you heard opening up there Bill Gates talking about how great his ROI is on investments and how uh, on vaccines and that him and his groups that you know he obviously influences have managed to make a tremendous amount of return and in investing on vaccinations and then we heard from the executive director from Oxfam at the international uh, at the at the WEF uh, Davos meeting or some recent meeting and talking about how covid has been one of the most profitable profitable products ever and 
there's been so many new billionaires minted in COVID. So talk about, you know, making, uh, taking an opportunity out of a disaster. Uh, imagine even being in on some of the for pre-planning or people that knew about it beforehand, uh, kind of like uh, some of the stock trading and uh, even like the insurance uh, claims that lucky L Larry Silverstein had around the time of 9-11. Um, these people, you know, when there's, when there's an eco economic catastrophe, when there's catastrophe in the world, there are people that know how to profit off that. I'm not saying necessarily judging that as a bad thing, but she did call it a product. Uh, she did. I don't know if that was a slip, a Freudian slip. She called COVID a product and said that it was one of the most profitable products. So again, going back to, you know, Klaus Schwab's book, COVID-19 and the Great Reset, you know, basically saying to your face, this is our great reset. We are the ones that, you know, have been behind this and uh, we've we've gone ahead and we've so if we penetrate the cabinets. We've, we've extremely so if we gone penetrate into penetrate the cabinets. The cabinets. And, uh, you know, he, he, penetrating the cabinets. OK, so. Uh, does that mean that, you know, you've got control of these governments like Canada or even the United States? And um, and now with COVID-19 and the Great Reset, are you basically admitting to carrying that out? And we have these these ignorant fools up there saying that oh, COVID-19 was the most profitable product ever. And they're basically just telling you to your face, like, you're a dumb idiot. Go back to Netflix. Go back to watching whatever shit you watch at night and fill your brain with nonsense and uh, we'll just sit over here continuing to profit off your ignorance, to take advantage of this opportunity, to use uh, this pandemic as an excuse to continue to mint new billionaires. And uh, we saw with Klaus Schwab's, uh, whatever is it, I wanted to say League of Gentlemen, but it's the world leaders, the, the young leaders, the young global leaders uh, that are penetrating the cabinets. Um these people are placed all throughout the world and uh you know he's even even claimed people like elon musk as being one of the young global leaders but here at freedoms rising we do under the name i mean we've got to generate the fire we've got to get freedoms rising uh in more people's minds we've got to free more minds with freedoms rising so uh that doesn't mean we're definitely headed for that it actually if we sit idle, if we do nothing, if we just let life go by and eventually get to the point where it ends too early for some of us. And some people, unfortunately, through the effects of this pandemic, through the effects of the vaccinations, aren't with us here any longer on this planet. And uh, at that point, you don't have time to work on this. You don't have time to try to understand what's going on and do something proactive about it. And that's what Freedoms Rising really is. We're, we're documenting uh, the problem, the solutions, and putting that on a record that can not be taken down, that's indelible. And if anything, trying to help at least the curious, at least the seekers, uh, find the information, and hopefully they'll find it useful and share it out. Um, I'm not necessarily counting on or hoping for some mass awakening by doing this work. It's almost more of a moral response and a moral situation that I feel like this work needs to be done just because of the big enough picture that I've been able to paint and seeing, you know, what's 
going on to a certain extent and and then seeing that you know well this needs to be done then 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 we have to do this i i've got to create a way to make it sustainable for myself and make it more of a full-time vocational gig uh doing this work uh but for now you know i'm not going to create a lot of excuses and oh i don't have my lead magnet yet so how am i going to capture all these people trickling in i mean that that's not my main prerogative here but I do feel like it's foolish to sort of, you know, wither into the into the nothingness and uh, old age and never have something set up for myself where this can eventually not like benefit me as in I'm going to be some big millionaire, but make it so fans and people that want to support the show can. And so I have been thinking about, you know, what what does that look like? How do we make it done in a way that's not, you know, cringy but actually adds a lot of value to the audience and you know that i i offer my discords for free i don't charge for that i just have an email sign up on my website i don't have a lead magnet and all these things that i need to pitch but is that foolish is that irresponsible you know it could be anyway going back to the to the show and those things will come out more in the future but we'll talk about that but if you're listening to this show and you're you know you see that you're on episode 28 and let's say we're I'm now up in the future on episode 100 just know that at that point if you're interested in helping and supporting and being a member and being a uh an asset or you know so, someone who can you know participate in building freedoms rising and help with the project that there will be a, a light and ways to do that coming down in the future but right now we're really just trying to provide as much value up front as we can by doing these episodes and also like I said I feel like it's a a, a duty and I'm not always going to have the energy or the time or the desire even to be able to do this sort of work it's it's a lot of extra additional time spent doing these things when I have you know a career I have a family I have uh, you know I'm struggling out there just like everyone else and uh, using the time that I have to the best of my advantage at, you know, with the time that I do have here. And so we also heard in the opening montage from Jeffrey David Sachs, who was telling and saying, you know, he thinks that this is a U.S. Uh, bio lab creation, basically, that COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2. And if you look at SARS-CoV-1, the uh, highly pathogenic uh, SARS virus and uh, where the origins of that came from, it's also gain of function manipulation and biological lab uh, creation. So it, it doesn't take much to understand that the number two of that would be, uh, you know, also <laughs> a bioweapons, biolab creation. It's not um, hidden in that way. It's just that there's so much mud thrown around and so much dust in the air and the China and oh, it's a wet market and oh, it's a, it's a, it's even the, the, uh, the, uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology, you know, that leaked, it leaked and all these things that are thrown around to take away and detract from the true origins. And even if you just want to follow the money, as we heard, you know, Fauci getting grilled by Rand there in the beginning. And I had to get that into the BioSci War just because all the stuff we covered with, you know, Clint Richardson's Wag the Dog documentary and, you know, trying so hard last year in 2021 to show people, hey, look, 
Fauci's been involved in this stuff, not just Fauci, but his organizations, his people, his, um, and he, you know, he's such a central figure. He's been in the government for so long. He's been, um, serving in these positions in public health for a long time that he's sort of this figurehead, but obviously he's not the only one involved, but, uh, you know, we were heavily last year before I took a break covering that. And then to sit back and hear these these uh, committee hearings with Rand Paul drilling Fauci was like, I, it was somewhat of a a moment like, yeah, you know, we, you know, maybe not like, oh, I made a difference there. But like we were we were saying that stuff and trying to point people to that information. It was going to come out anyways. But to hear it on a public stage like that, on like on a national stage, on a worldwide stage, and now those clips have been shared around. But then we also heard a more recent clip, and I had to get that into the BioSci War feed. So for those that have heard some of those clips over and over, or Bill Gates talking about his aura, Bill Gates, and you have to hear his little sad, pathetic voice in the beginning here. Uh, sorry about having to do that, but we need to get those things into the record. We have to put those into the BioSci War because those are very important sort of moment in this in this battle that happened that now we've got them in an episode that can be you know referenced back to even though those some of those clips are a bit older but we did catch that more recent exchange with Fauci and Rand Paul uh, talking about uh, the children's studies and the lack of data and then like where exactly um, some of the money comes from and you know, Fauci's still stumbling and fumbling over. And in the gain-of-function um, clip, the, the one from 2021, it's 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 like this milly-mouth, like, mixing of words, changing definitions. Oh, the NIH website doesn't say gain-of-function is that. Uh, we didn't fund that sort of research when it's clear and obvious now that they did and that Fauci has tried to use this, like, uh, sophist uh, reasoning and logic and display of dancing around the fact that there could be heavy ties back to him back to the organizations that he's worked for and under and over uh that link to this out- outbreak pandemic uh being some sort of accident right that they say uh, i don't again my opinion is that i don't think it was an accident and we're not going to work only to prove that point but we're going to uncover angles and we're going to continue to dig and look at the information that's available in the bio war. And uh, Jeffrey Sachs, uh, he's basically like some kind of UN uh, poster child. I mean, this guy uh, it says here on the Info Galactic, uh, he is a Jewish American economist, academic, public policy analyst, and former director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, where he holds the title of university professor. He is known as one of the world's leading experts on sustainable development, economic development, and the fight against poverty. Sachs is the direct director of the Center of Sustainable Development at Columbia University and president of the UN Sustainable Development Solution Network. Now, people that know where these terms and things come from, I mean, you're being like gaslighted here. He's basically someone who's totally in on the agenda, uh, you know, and, you know, sustainable development is nothing more than population control, which is nothing more than eugenics. It's nothing more than cybernetic systems that have been created to, you know, control people and control 
populations and reduce them and all these things, right, that sustainable development actually means. So when we give the power away to these people, what sort of techniques are they going to use to reduce the population? But anyway, he, he either, you know, being a canary or some sort of a whistleblower, but basically was out there in the public saying that he thinks that this whole thing came from uh, U.S. biomedical labs and biomedical research and gain-of-function research here in the United States. Um, so that that was an interesting clip to play in there. We also heard in the beginning, just to finish up, was the Russia and China form alliances against U.S. on Ukraine biolab issue from Robert Goive-esque, uh, watching the Watchers on Odyssey is where I found that video. And he's, you know, going over the Victoria Newland uh, after U.S. Secretary Victoria Newland revealed the presence of U.S., ish biolabs in Ukraine, Russia and Chinese foreign ministers sprung into action demanding to hold the United States accountable for these projects. I think this is somewhat propaganda. Even the guy covering it is sort of just falling into the propaganda. And, you know, biolabs doesn't necessarily mean like biodefense or bio-offense or bio-weapons. And it could, I mean, I don't know, maybe even like a dentist office accounts for like some form of a bio lab. But, you know, they're just like, oh, there's these bio labs everywhere. And that, it, I mean, I did think it was interesting if that translation was correct, that the Chinese foreign minister was warning that, you know, the U.S. has been involved in bioweapons research at Fort Detrick and would like to know more about what these bio labs are all over and we're we're going to get into more of that. We're going to allow information, we're going to put information into the podcast at the end here that's going to help us uncover more of that angle and get into that. I mean, there is some interesting news floating about and things um, that we're going to cover. So let's get right into it. Uh, we We have a lot to review and not enough time usually for me to be doing the reviewing, and that's also why we're putting in the clips to add the context to add time that I can do in sort of post or pre-production, and then uh, with the recordings and the times that I have to do it, uh, we're going to be able to provide either just some commentary on the clips or even provide some of the information ourselves. Today we're going to be reading from an, an important article here from The Defender from Children's Health Defense News and Views, and... Uh, Children's Health Defense, I believe, is Robert F. Kennedy's, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s site, and there's a lot of different authors and contributors to that now, and they have like a board of directors, and it, it's a it's a big deal, you know. But Children's Health Defense, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the Waterkeeper Alliance and founder chairman of the Border of Chief legal counsel for the Children's Health Defense, reading here from the About Us page. He is also counsel to Morgan & Morgan, a nationwide personal injury practice. Kennedy is an esteemed author with a long list of published books, including the New York Times, best-selling Crimes Against Nature. Mr. Kennedy was named one of the Times Magazine's heroes for the planet for his success in helping Riverkeeper leading the fight to restore the Hudson River. His reputation is resolute defender of the environment and children's health stems from a litany of successful legal actions. He received recognition for his role in the landmark victory against Monsanto last year, as well as the DuPont case that inspired the movie Dark Waters in 2019. 
not something I'm going to have to check out. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, is something I have not gotten my hands on yet. I was trying to get it off LibGen the other day just to have it. And I think I'm going to have to do a, a purchase of that book and go through it and maybe even do the Audible version and uh, maybe even have some appearances from that book in the BioSciWar. Yes, I admit it, I haven't uh, read the book yet, but I plan to, and I, I've heard it's uh, just tr tremendous work there. But we're going to get into the article today, U.S. Firms Ties to WEF DOD Implicated in Bioweapons Cover-Up from April 8, 2022, by Dr. Joseph Mercola. And... Uh, I'd like to just get started in the article in the essence of time, and you'll be able to find the full article here in the notes. But it says, story at a glance, As and then there's one, two, three, four, five bullet points. So they, they summarize, and then the article begins. So let's read these bullet points. Story at a glance. As evidence of potential bioweapons cover-up has started emerging, a company called Metobiota is gaining prominence. Metobiota's mission is to make the world more resilient to epidemics by providing, quote, data analytics, advice, and training to prepare for global health threats and mitigate their impacts, unquote. Its founder is a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader graduate. Metobiota, next point, Metobiota investors include Incutel, a CIA venture capital firm that specializes in high-tech investments that support or benefit the intelligence capacity of U.S. intelligence agencies. Under, under, uh, sorry. Hunter Biden's investment fund, Rosetta Seneca, and the U.S. Department of Defense's Threat Reduction Agency, DTRA, which contracted Metobiota to run operations in U.S. connected labs in Ukraine. DTRA being really nothing more than a DARPA organization. I mean, not to say it's nothing more, but the uh, D Defense Threat Reduction Agency uh, is tied in with DARPA. Uh, I'm reading here now from the globalbiodefense.com, and it says the Defense Threat Reduction Agency is the intellectual, technical, and operational leader of the U.S. Department of Defense, DOD, the U.S. Strategic Command in effort to combat biological, chemical, and nuclear threats, while the DTRA Chemical and Biological Technologies Dic uh, Directorate, DTRACB, is part of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. It is DARPA's focal point for chemical and biological scientific and technical expertise. So now back to the article, just tying in, showing you how the DTRA is part of DARPA. And they are contracting with Metobiota to run operations in U.S. connected labs in Ukraine. In addition to having close ties to the WEF and its Great Reset Agenda, Nathan Wolf, the founder of Metobiota, has also served on the EcoHealth Alliance's editorial board since 2004. In 2017, he co-wrote a study on coronavirus in bats together with EcoHealth President Peter Dejak, Ph.D. EcoHealth worked closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China, where SARS-CoV-2 is suspected having of having originated. 
Next point, Metobiata's global partnership are led by Andrew C. Weber, former Assistant Secretary of Defense of nu- for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense, who created DTRA. As evidence of potential bioweapons cover-up has started emerging, a company called Metabiota is gaining prominence. And now we're, we're getting into the beginning of this article now, uh, the article titled, U.S. Firm with Ties to WEF DOD Implicated in Bioweapons Cover-Up, an article from April 8th, 2022, by Dr. Joseph Mercola. Continuing on at the top of the article, pretty much, after the bullet points. The links between Metobiota and several key players in the COVID pandemic and or Ukraine lab's story are manifold. So there's no really simple way to unravel it in a logical sequence. That said, let's start with what Metobiota does and the connections of its founder, and expand from there. Metobiota's mission. Metobiota's mission is to make the world more resilient to epidemics by providing, quote, data analytics, advanced, and training to prepare for global health threats and mitigate their impacts, unquote. Through data analysis, they help, quote, decision makers across government and industry to estimate and mitigate pandemic risks, but they also claim to support quote, sustainable development, unquote, which seems to have little to do with pandemic risk management. Of course, they're going to throw that term in there, right? Continuing on. That term, quote, sustainable development, unquote, is one of the prominent, is one promoted by Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum. It's part of, it's part and parcel of Schwab's plan for a global great reset and transhumanist revolution, parenthetically, aka the fourth industrial revolution. It is not surprising, then, to find out that the founder of Metobiota, Nathan Wolf, has only ha- not only has close ties to the WEF, but is also a rising star. He's a WEF Young Global Leader graduate and was awarded the WEF's Technology Pioneer Award in 2021. Metobiota and the Search for Pandemic Viruses is the next section. Metobiota was a core partner of a United States Agency for International Development, USAID, pandemic threat program called PREDICT, which also sought to identify viruses with pandemic potential. And just me speaking here, uh, USAID is pretty much well known to be a CIA front organization. Uh, You can almost just replace the word with CIA and their PREDICT program. Um, Continuing on with the article here. Contractors funded through this program have included the EcoHealth Alliance, headed by Peter Dejak. The PREDICT program, directed by Dennis Carroll, appears to have served as proof of concept for the global virome project that Carroll founded. According to a recent investigation by U.S. Right to Know, USRTK, Carroll appears to have diverted government funds from a PREDICT program while he was running it to fund the personal side project which was set up with the intention to collect, identify, and catalog one million viruses from wildlife in an effort to predict which ones might cause a human epidemic. Now the section, Metobiota's Funding. Metobiota received funding from several interconnected organizations and agencies, including... And now we have one, two, three, four, five, six bullet points... 
So we'll go into those. Pilot Growth Management, co-founded by Neil, and this is the funding that Metabiota has received um, from several interconnected organizations, it says. Pilot Growth Management, co-founder by Neil Callahan. Callahan is part co-founder of the Rosamont Seneca Technology Partners, and he sits on Metabiota's board of advisors. The Global Virome Project, which reportedly paid or was planning to pay Metabiota $341,000 to conduct a cost-benefit analysis. Incutel, a CIA venture capitalist firm that specializes in high-tech investments that support or benefit the intelligence capacity of U.S. intelligence agencies. I'll just say parenthetically that the old life log, I mean, Facebook, I mean, DARPA's uh, category index of all what you're doing and saying and everything you ever did and posted online. Uh, I mean, Facebook, right? The, the organically grown company Facebook was invested in heavily by Incutel with seed money in the beginning. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Facebook's basically, you know, working directly with the intelligence agencies to hand over all your data to them. That's no secret. Uh, yeah, we've, we've, um, covered that back in previous episodes in tylerbloyer.com feeds uh, the cyber panopticon i think was the episode of the cyber panopticon next line here the u.s department of defense threat reduction agency dtra specifically in 2014 dtra awarded metabiota 18.4 million in a federal contract for scientific in federal contracts for scientific and technical consulting services to the DTRA labs in Ukraine and Georgia. And that has a hyperlink and a reference. They're, the people who wrote this article know how to use hyperlinks, so they've actually referenced a lot of what their claims are throughout the article, which you can find in the notes. Continuing on, by outsourcing work to private companies, DTRA is able to circumvent congressional oversight. Russia is now accusing the U.S. of funding secret and illegal bioweapons research in these Ukraine labs and claim that it was a real reason behind its invasion. Rosamont Seneca, an investment fund co-managed by Hunter Biden, if Russia's accusations turn out to be true, this tie may prove deeply problematic for the White House, as it means the Biden family were more or less directly involved in the funding of that research. Wolf has also received more than $20 million in research grants from Google, the NIH, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, just to name a few, and was a friend of the now-deceased Jeffrey Epstein. In his 2012 book, quote, The Viral Storm, unquote, Wolf thanked friends for their support, including Epstein and Boris Nikolic. Nikolic, a biotech venture capitalist, was named, quote, backup executor, unquote, in Epstein's will. Epstein, who besides being a convicted pedophile and accused child sex trafficker, had a robust interest in eugenics. It is well known that he dreamed of creating a superhuman race of his own by impregnating dozens of women at the time at a time at his New Mexico ranch. Epstein also managed to secure meetings with Bill Gates, whose family's history is also marked by an interest in eugenics and population control. Talking about uh, William H. Gates there, right? His uh, big Papa Gates, who was a member of the Eugenics Society and someone who... uh, Bill is basically just continuing on with that legacy of eugenics and implementing that with technological means. 
So, continuing on with the article, the next section is Metobiotis Founder Tied to Suspect in COVID-19 Pandemic. In addition to having close ties to the World Economic Forum and its Great Reset Agenda, Wolf, the founder of Metobiota, has also served on the EcoHealth Alliance's editorial board since 2004. In 2017, he even co-wrote a study on coronaviruses in bats together with the EcoHealth Alliance's president, Peter Dejak. As you may recall, EcoHealth Alliance, a nonprofit organiza- organization focused on pandemic prevention, worked closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, WIV, in China, where SARS-CoV-2 is suspect of having originated. Dejak, who received funding for coronavirus research from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, NIAID, led by Dr. Anthony Fauci, and the U.S. State Department subcontracted some of that work to Shi Zing Li at WIV and was also the co-author on research projects at the WIV. Once rumors of SARS-CoV-2 being, made, being man-made first began, Dejak played a central role in the plot to obscure a lab origin by crafting a scientific statement condemning such inquiries as, quote, conspiracy theory, unquote. This manufactured, quote, consensus, unquote, was then relied on by the media to counter anyone pressing theories and evidence to the contrary. This despite the fact that he, in 2015, warned that a global pandemic might occur from a laboratory incident, and that's hyperlinked, and that, quote, the risks were greater with a sort of virus manipulation research being carried out in Wuhan, unquote. In 2021, Two investigations into the origins of COVID pandemic were opened, one by the World Health Organization and one another by The Lancet, and Dashik somehow managed to end up on both of these committees despite having openly and repeatedly dismissed the possibility of the pandemic being the result of a lab leak, and I'll parenthetically say here, and having to retract that article from The Lancet because it was entirely complete bullshit, and that he was just covering his tracks and making shit up, and, uh, then, you know, basically saying it was, oh, there's only way that this happened. It was a zoonautical thing. There was nothing else going on. Okay, so why are we listening to this person and having him head these uh, investigations or be involved with them? Uh, Yeah, so continuing on with the article. Interestingly, one of EcoHealth Alliance's policy advisors and a former Fort Detrick commander named David Franz uh, Fort Detrick is the principal U.S. government-run, quote, biodefense, unquote, facility, although Franz himself has publicly admitted that, quote, in biology, everything is dual use, the people and facilities and the equipment, and and that's, unquote. We've covered that a lot in the BioSci War, this dual use, this uh, sort of pragmatic thing that we've got to do it, or the Russians will do it, or nature will do it, so we've got to create these things and then create the defenses for them. And then calling that only defensive. And, you know, there's nothing being done here to create actual weapons or uh, to uh, weaponize this research at all. But as as the uh, uh, David Franz, the uh, principal in U.S. government-run Fort Detrick, says that that everything is dual use. It it all has, you know, a double-edged sword. Continuing on. Metabiota and the DTRA. In late May 2016, Metabiota hired Andrew C. Weber, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. We covered them back at the towards the end of the Falling into the Movement Trap series, you know, part nine, part eight, part nine. 
the Council on Foreign Relations, to head up the global partnerships between 2009 and 2014. Weber served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense under then-President Obama. Weber is credited for creating the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, a combat support agency within the U.S. DOD, specializing in countering weapons of mass destruction, including biological weapons. And as mentioned earlier, the DTRA has reportedly funded Metobiota to operate U.S.-funded biological research labs in Ukraine. The DTRA and also has also issued a number of grants to the EcoHealth Alliance, totaling at least $37.5 million, including a 2017 grant for $6.5 million, to, quote, understand the risk of bat-borne zoonotic disease emerging in Western Asia, unquote. According to a December 2020 report by The Defender, EcoHealth Alliance has tried to hide most of the Pentagon's funding that it had received between 2013 and 2020, most of which came from DTRA. The next section here is Meadowbiota's bung, bun, <laughs> Meadowbiota's bungled Ebola response. And we are in the bio war barrage, and we're bungling up the words here. Meadowbiota's bungled Ebola response. In 2016, CBS News published a scathing critique of Meadowbiota's response to the 2014 Ebola e- epidemic in West Africa. Meadowbiota had been... Tr- hired by the WHO and the local government of Sierra Leone to monitor the spread of the epidemic. But according to an investigation by the Associated Press, quote, some of the company's actions made an already chaotic situation worse, unquote. In a 2000, in July 17, 2014, email obtained by AP, Dr. Eric Bertherat, medical advisor, uh, let me start that over. In 2017, <laughs> in a July 17th, 2014 email obtained by the AP, Dr. Eric Bertherat, medical officer at the WHO's Department of Epidemic and Pandemic Alert and Response, complained about a misdiagnosis and, quote, total confusion, unquote, at the small laboratory Metobiota shared with Tulane University in Kinema, Sierra Leone. According to Breitbart, there was, quote, no tracking of the samples, unquote, and, quote, absolutely no control on what is being done, unquote. This situation that who can no longer, that the WHO can no longer endorse, unquote, he wrote, similarly, Sylvia Blyden, special executive assistant to the president of Sierra Leone, told AP Meadowbiota's response was a disaster. And then it quotes that. They messed up the entire region, she said. She called Meadowbiota's attempt to claim credit for its Ebola work, quote, an insult for the memories of thousands of Africans who have died. U.S. health official Austin Demby, who evaluated Metobiota's Tulane lab work at the request of U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the government of Sierra Leone, was also critical. The one email Demby noted used needles, uh, sorry, used needles were left out and there were no ultraviolet light for decontamination. The space was also too small to safely 
process blood samples. Quote, the cross-contaminated potential is huge and, quite frankly, unacceptable, he wrote. Anja Wolz, an emergency coordinator with Doctors Without Borders, told AP that witnesses... Uh, sorry, told AP she witnessed Metobiata's workers entering homes of suspected Ebola patients without protective gear and leaving high-risk areas without performing any kind of decontamination procedure. She also accused Metobiata of miscalculating the severity and, and the outbreak while insisting that they had the situation under control when clearly they didn't. Tulane microbiology professor Bob Gary was also critical of Metobiota's choice to have Dr. Jean Paul Gonzalez run the operation, as Gonzalez, in 1994, had accidentally gotten infected with a rare hemorrhagic fever while working in Yale, a Yale University lab. He failed to notify anyone about the exposure for more than a week, a delay that put more than a hundred other people at risk, and Gonzalez was ordered to take a remedial safety course, but according to Gary, such carelessness was a red flag. He didn't think that Gonzalez was the right man to teach Sierra Leonans about Ebola, saying, quote, Do you really want the person who infected himself with a hemorrhagic fever around explaining to people how to be safe, unquote? Gary asked in an email to Metobiata media representatives. Wolf defended his company, saying, there was no evidence they'd done anything wrong. Some of the problems had he had blamed on misunderstandings and other on commercial rivalry. Next section, lab accident, quote, most likely, unquote, yet least probable cause of COVID. In a March 28, 2022 report, U.S. Right to Know revealed the contents of a 2020 State Department memo obtained by the group USRTK writes, quote, Origin of the outbreak, the Wuhan lab, remains the most likely but least probed, reads the top line. The memo is written as, the be- as a bluff bottom line up front, a style of communication used in the military. The identity of the author was un- it is unknown. And it says, quote, bluff, and that is, again, bottom line up front, There, and that's like where the, the header of that starts, right? The header is like bluff, so it's like, here's the bottom line. There is no direct smoking gun evidence to prove that the leak from the Wuhan labs caused the pandemic, but there is circumstantial evidence to suggest that the case, the memo reads, apparently, drafted in the spring of 2020, of 2020, the memo details circumstantial evidence for the lab leak theory, the idea that COVID-19 originated at one of the labs in Wuhan, China, the pandemic's epicenter. Quote, the memo raises concern about the massive amount of research on novel coronaviruses apparently conducted at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and nearby Wuhan Center for Disease Control Lab. The memo also flags biosafety lapses on the on both labs calling the Wuhan Institute of Virology management of deadly viruses and virus-carrying lab animals, appallingly poor and negligent. The memo provides an extra, extraordinary window into the behind-the-scenes concerns about lab accidents among U.S. foreign policy leaders, and even at this time of inquiry was deemed a conspiracy theory by international virologists, some of whom had undisclosed conflicts of interest. I wonder who they're talking about there. Maybe Dajak? It continues on uh, with this. 
The memo also calls into question these virologists' impartiality. Xi Zingli, a Wuhan Institute of Virology coronavirus research nicknamed the Batwoman, has forged wide-reaching international collaborations, including with prestigious Western virologists, the memo notes. Suspicion lingers that she holds an important and powerful position in the field of in China and has extensive cooperation, cooperation with many international virologists who might be doing her a favor, it reads. The memo laments that the most logical place to investigate the virus origin has been completely sealed off from the inquiry by the Chinese Communist Party. The memo even suggests that other uh, the other hypothesis that has served as a distraction from the probe of the city's extensive research on novel coronavirus, saying, quote, all other theories are likely to be a decoy to prevent an injury into the, WC, uh, the WCDC and the WIV, it states. And we're still continuing on with this um, report from the U.S. Right to Know Revealed uh, the contents of the 2020 State Department memo obtained by that U.S. right to know, and the points that were made in that uh, article. So finishing that up, the memo laments that the most logical place to investigate the virus's origins have been completely sealed off from inquiry by the Ch- uh, Chinese Communist Party. The memo even suggests that the hypoth- that other hypothesis may have served as a distraction of a probe of the city's extensive research on novel coronavirus. All other theories are likely to be a decoy to prevent injury into the WCDC and the WIV, it states. The memo cites a 2015 paper co-authored by Xi titled, A SARS-like cluster of circulating bat coronaviruses shows potential for human emergence that describes creating a chimera or engineered virus with a spike protein of a coronavirus from a Chinese horseshoe bat. Editors at Nature Medicine added a note in March 2020 cautioning that the article was, quote, being used for the basis of an unverified theories that the novel coronavirus caused COVID-19 was engineered, unquote. But the mem- memo shows that the State Department indeed considered the paper relevant to the pandemic's origins. Okay, just glancing at how much article is left and how much time I have got left today. And it looks like this will be a two-parter that we'll have to continue on with this article in tomorrow's episode, uh, as I will run out of time today. And I know that's like, oh, well, fuck, dude, why don't you just record this when you have the time, or why aren't you? And it's because of the schedule I've created and the amount of trickling out these episodes that we're trying to do. I have a limited time. When that time's done, I'm going to stop, then we'll continue on the next day. And that might actually help to sort of leapfrog with what we're going to be butting on to the end of this episode and uh, coming back to cover the rest of it um, synchronistically or whatever you could call it. Uh, That actually usually works out pretty well. So I'll continue on here with the article from the Defender Children's Health Defense News and Views. U.S. firms with ties to the WEF, DOD, implicated in the bioweapons cover-up. We are uh, down to the section, NIH retracted gene sequences at WIV researchers' request. And you are listening to the BioSci War Barrage 
part two here on Freedoms Rising, episode number 28, and I appreciate you for hanging in there. While we've yet to obtain bulletproof evidence that SARS-CoV-2 was developed as a bioweapon, there's plenty of circumstantial evidence that points in that direction, and that's a hyperlink. Disturbingly, as time goes on, more and more circumstantial evidence seems to highlight the United States, quote, involvement, unquote, in the proverbial finger is pointing at China. If one proverbial finger is pointing at China, four others are pointing back at us. This is profoundly bad news, but it really ought to strengthen our resolve to get to the bottom of it. None of us are safe until the mad scientists responsible for this pandemic are brought to justice. It doesn't matter who they are. In all likelihood, we've, we'll find that blame cannot be pinned on a single nation. At a bare mi- minimum, the U.S. and China appear to be covering for each other. And I'll say, well, porting down, porting down. <laughs> Don't forget the U.K., don't forget their involvement in, in uh, any of the research or uh, don't look into that, you know. Anyway, that's I don't think the person, I don't think Mercola is trying to keep us from that. I think he's trying to stick to the data here, and we'll do that as well. So we're going to continue on. As just one example, there are deletions of information that have occurred both at the National Institute of Health and the WIV, either at others' request or as what appears to be a favor. As reported by the Just-in-Time News, the NIH deleted a genetic sequencing submission of the SARS-CoV-2 from its sequence Red Archives, SRA, at the request of the researchers at the WIV. Emails obtained by a Freedom of Information Act request to the NIH by Empowered Oversight shows the WIV researcher who had submitted two genetic sequences to the SRA, one in March of 2020 and a second in June of 2020, asked to have the last one retracted. The NIH initially stated that it would be better to edit or replace the submission rather than retracting it, but the researchers insisted it be removed, which they did. To be fair, the NIH also stated it has retracted at least eight SRA submissions in total, most from American researchers at the at their request. However, emails also show the NIH directed reporters on how to provide more favorable and less sensationalized coverage of the deletion of the Chinese sequence. Just the news writes, and it's uh, hyperlinked, and what they wrote is here. Uh, Empowered Oversight says one of the most Disconcerting elements of the emails is evidence showing that the NIH refused to participate in a transparent process to examine data on the deleted sequences. Most importantly, why has the NIH refused to examine archival copies of deleted sequences in an open scientific process to determine whether any of the information might be able to shed the light on the origins of of the COVID-19 pandemic, the group asked. And it says, and that's still continuing on from the excerpt from the Justin, Just the News article. However, the argument was dismissed by the NIH official Steve Sherry, although sequences are never fully deleted. According to the agency, agency Sherry told a researcher who asked for transparency, quote, As you know, when the data sets are withdrawn from the database, that status does not permit us any further analysis, unquote. 
And uh, let's see here. Okay. I'm just kind of reading ahead. I, I'm excited to get into the rest of this and finish off this article by Mercola. I think, again, we'll have to get to that tomorrow. Those who are proactive and listening to this can obviously find the link in the show notes and continue on with that. But we'll uh, stop there at the WIV deletes mentions of U.S. collaborators in the article. And what we're going to do here now is jump into uh, someone whose work we mentioned yesterday, uh, Dave Emery. And Dave Emery does the show For the Record and many other series that Dave has done um, over the years, but the main one being For the Record. And again, this individual has done a tremendous amount of public service uh, going back, you know, 20 years, 22 years, or even further uh, back to the 80s, really. Uh, with Uncle Sam and the Swastika, I believe, was recorded like way a long time ago. I might be wrong, but I think it was like late 80s. And just has, has now, up into his later age, continued on doing this public service. And I'm much appreciative of the work that Mr. Emery has done. Uh, I think he does a good job of covering the data and keeping it interesting and also has way more context and uh, intellectual insight into these topics than someone like myself. So we don't pretend to know it all here. I'm a student, an explorer, and in this show, somewhat of a navigator to help you weed through the information and bring it to light and put it in a format that's more transportable, that can be easily digested by folks. Again, I, I picture myself out gardening, uh, mowing the lawn, uh, doing things and activities. And I've usually got an earbud in, I've usually got something playing, a podcast, a phone going, and really rely heavily on people putting out audio versions of things, myself in particular. I'm able to consume it that way. I know some people are not. So I'm serving to the audience like myself that might appreciate these audio format podcasts. I was reviewing some of my recent work today uh, with the video and the whole setup I have here that's it's still here. It's in different pieces have been moved around. I, I've utilized some of the equipment in other places in my home, but I, I would like to get that studio back up and running one day. Does it add to the production value? Absolutely. It does. Does the way that I have it now where I can sit down and record and get it out and, you know, not have as many issues and technical problems and can do it work as well. Yes. I, th I think it does. Um, I don't think in the long run, my face being on the screen and having the images is going to matter as much. In some cases, it's easier to show a document to show how something looked. That obviously is a limitation in an audio format only. I think the solution to that is once we build up enough steam and have a, a nice audience and people listening, we can start to schedule live shows and maybe like I'll, I'll cut out the Thursday show from the podcast and prepare like a Thursday night live or something, right? And we can go into uh, having a live interaction and, um, you know, doing it live is it definitely adds complexity. I don't heavily edit these. These episodes are basically live. Um, but anyway, I could kind of continue down this rambling for a while. But what I'd ask to do for now, again, is to sign up for the emails. I send out uh, episode 
updates via email and other important updates at tylerbloyer.com. You can easily find out how to sign up there. It's on all the posts at the bottom, and also there's a pop-up, and in the menu bar you can sign up. And let me know if there's any issues with that. I know that there was some bugs with that plugin that I was using a while back. I need to run through and test that myself to make sure it's working. But also, uh, again, what we're going to be getting into here is context for this episode to get into for the record 1251 Pandemics Inc. Oh, wait, that's not the one we're going to (laughs) do. Hold on. Let me pull up the right episode that we have queued up here. It's actually, for the record, 1248, the Ukraine War meets the Oswald Institute of Virology, Part 1, and that's a three-part series so far. This was recorded on June 11th, 2022, and I wanted to play Part 3, but I felt like, you know, we don't want to bring people in to that, but I think that the whole series is good. I don't know if we'll play the whole series here in the BioSci War, but I think what we will do is get you started here today with part one of that series. Again, you're not going to be able to go through all of Dave Emery's work in a lifetime, but you can order like a USB drive that has a bunch of uh, anti-fascist books and his whole life's work on it. And you'll hear him pitch his calls to action. You'll hear him pitch his lead magnets, (laughs) right? And we're going to let that all through. We're going to play the whole episode. We're going to let Dave's style and his shine come through here at the end, and thank you for listening, and I, I, ho- I hope you enjoy this piece. And we'll, we'll let Dave, like I said, open up, and he, he does his, his spill, he does his calls to action, he has his own way of opening up his own show, and we're going to keep it intact. We're not going to cut it out, we're not going to take clips from it. We're going to play the whole thing, and then we're going to end with the ominous, uh, fortuitous sort of uh, future-looking and ominous warning from Eisenhower in his farewell address where we've all heard him talk about the military industrial complex and how we've got to watch out for that and now we see where we're at right we see that we have these mad scientists uh reigning over these DTRA and uh funding going around funding these uh chimeric viruses being created and oh whoops it was accidentally released even though you know, we see that PNAC document that we talked about, how a biological, uh, uh, basically race-specific bioweapons can be used as good political tools. And we we can use that. And so, you know, again, my theory is that this has been planned from early 2000s, you know, back in the anthrax days to have these viruses leaked out, you know, leaked, quote unquote, out into the world. And then have the problem reaction solution response oh we're gonna have to get the uh, vaccine passports and we're gonna need to track more about everything that you do and oh by the way like why don't we save the planet while we're at it and reduce your carbon footprint down and have you start eating the bugs while we we work on penetrate the cabinets and we penetrate the cabinets and you will just bow down to the fuhrer basically the neo-nazis are in control and uh, the world is being ran by psychopathic Nazis who are using their techno-communist agendas to coal and control the masses. Anyway, what we're going to do here is uh, heed that warning and keep an eye on these folks through the bio war barrage. We'll be back with part three. We will continue on with the article that we were reading from the Defender Children's Health Defense by Joseph, Dr. Joseph Mercola. For now, 
We're going to get into Dave Emery's For the Record uh, episode, which is, I just want to make sure I get the title right this time, The Ukraine War Meets the Oswald Institute of Virology, Part 1. And then we'll finish off with Eisenhower, and we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you then. Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1248. The Ukraine War Meets the Oswald Institute of Virology. This is being recorded on June 10th of the year 2022. Uh, Before we get into the main body of the program, as always, some links. These are at the top of each written for the record description on the SpitfireList.com website and at the top of each food for thought post at the left-hand side of the front page, again, of the SpitfireList.com website. One of those links will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive containing basically all of my uh, 43 years' worth of work, both audio and print, plus all of the comments. More about those in a minute. Uh, this basically is everything that is on the SpitfireList.com website, and again, uh, it has the better part of a half century's worth of work by yours truly, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. As I've said so many times, and <laughs> ugh, this grim program, uh, and the first of a two- or three-part series, dealing with things that I really... <laughs> Uh, wish weren't happening, but uh, this will underscore perhaps uh, my uh, my my very sorry conviction that we are at the end of our civilization. And I think, at the risk of seeming uh, very pretentious or corny, I think that as sentient beings, I think you have we all have a responsibility, a karmic responsibility, so to speak, to preserve the record of what happened to our society for generations to come, assuming there are generations to come, because uh, as our old joke has it, our dogma is going to be run over by our karma, and it is just uh, not good at all. But anyway, all of the SpitfireList.com website is on a 32-gigabyte flash drive, which is yours, for a very nominal and tax-deductible fee. I get no money whatsoever from that. Now, another link, again, at the top of each Food for Thought description and at the top of each uh at the top of each food for thought article and each for the record description, uh, will enable you to subscribe to the comments that were made, usually by our brilliant contributing editor, Perifractal, sometimes by other people. With all that is going on in the world, there is much too much for me to contribute and cover, even in a one-hour weekly program. So increasingly, those comments are, I think, fundamental for people who wish to stay well-informed. And uh, Perifractal's been doing a great job. So have uh, other people as well. So uh, you can subscribe to those comments. Uh, also, uh, 
there is a link which will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by sister station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, and in the media landscape of 2022, that is increasingly the case, then uh, sister station WFMU is podcasting for the record. And also, there I have begun a Patreon site, and there is a link at the top of each written for the record description and each food for thought post for you to uh, participate in the Patreon uh, material. I'm doing free, one hour, often more than an hour plus recorded segments each week. Um, we were going to have edited transcripts. I, I think maybe what we'll do, I'm, I'm still working on this, is we'll have the unedited transcripts. They're raw. They're kind of like the old Google translations, or but they will give people something printed to hang on to. And we're also doing bi-weekly Zoom Q&A sessions. These Patreon, the Patreon material is still very much a work in progress. And uh, we should have uh, a more concrete grasp on what we're going to be doing fairly soon. But with three one-hour talks per week, a much more informal mode of presentation than these uh, admittedly very pedantic for-the-record programs, uh, again, I can cover much more material than I can in a one-hour broadcast. So that is the last of the four links that will uh, enable you to uh, flesh out your understanding. Now, uh, with the, as for the topic of this program, it will be at least, I think, a two-part series, maybe three. Uh, there have been developments coming to light, uh, that have twined the investigation into the uh, genesis of the coronavirus with the Ukraine war. Uh, there has been material that has been recovered from uh, Hunter, uh, Hunter, Hunter Biden's laptop uh, that has been confirmed by, among others, the Daily Mail. And Team Trump was looking for that laptop so they could uh, get all sorts of uh, dirty stuff on uh, Team Biden. And there is pl- apparently plenty of uh, smutty and drug-related stuff on there. But there were also some things that were very devastating indeed. And uh, it turns out that Hunter Thompson, excuse me, Hunter Thompson, there I go again, Hunter Biden was expediting uh, participation by a firm called Metabiopa in Ukraine, and Metabiopa has been heavily involved with biological warfare research. As we looked at, uh, Metabiopa was also very much hooked up with the EcoHealth Alliance, uh, one of the main apparent intelligence fronts involved with uh, what I call the Oswald Institute of Virology, also the Wuhan Institute of Virology is its correct name. Uh, there has been uh, a development in the investigation into the biological warfare labs in Ukraine, uh, but it really is very frightening uh, in our contemporary media environment. 
there is a, uh, I guess, with, with Cold War 2.0, uh, McCarthyism 2.0 has kicked in. And now anybody who is saying anything that is critical, either of uh, Ukraine or the Ukraine war, or even talking about things that are very well documented, such as the fundamental role of Nazi elements in the Ukrainian national security establishment and on their political landscape is branded a Putin dupe or a Russian dupe or a Russian collaborator or what have you. And something very similar is going on uh, with regard to China as well. I would note that in the exhaustive series I have done about uh, what I call biopsyop apocalypse, uh, and then eventually the long Oswald Institute of Biology series. Almost all of the material was taken from Western sources, and I think with the exception of uh, a South China Morning Post article, that's a very credible, by the way, Chinese publication. Uh, I think Jack Ma actually uh, owns the company that publishes it. And I think there was also a brief segment from the Global Times, but almost all of that exhaustive series. Uh, I think I began that, well, I know the first program I did about the pandemic was for the record 11.11, and I wrapped up the Oswald Institute of Virology series with for the record 11.93. There were a few in there, so I'd say about 70 hours, and then added to that with for the record 12.15. So in some 70 hours of programming, almost all of it is from Western sources. Uh, One of the allegations that was made by Russia in a UN session uh, there have been a couple of them, but one of them on April 6th was that uh, there were, among the projects that were being uh, run in Ukraine, involved using birds as vectors for various uh, genetically engineered biological warfare weapons. There has been a further development of that and uh, I would note that uh, I think it is extraordinarily unlikely that the Russians are using uh, Hunter Biden's laptop, nor are they using the Daily Mail from the UK, which, you know, although they're a right-wing paper and they have uh, a fairly uh, overt tabloid uh, spin to them, I guess you could say, or bent to them, uh, they do some good articles, and I've uh, accessed Daily Mail articles for many years, periodically. But I don't think the, the Russians are using either Hunter Biden's laptop or the Daily Mail. And I would note that the West uh, has completely boycotted or blacked out any mention of uh, those Russian UN Security uh, General Assembly uh, meetings. One of the claims that they made, and we've covered this in the past, was that there were birds, migratory birds, which were implanted with digital chips that were monitored by satellite, and they were also equipped with capsules that uh, contained uh, microbes, pathogenic microbes, viruses, and or bacteria. When the birds, and again, they're the Implanted chips are, are monitored by satellite. When the birds are over a country that is targeted, they are killed and the capsules are released. Uh, 
Uh, there is a very important and long article that we are going to be accessing. We have uh, accessed many articles from this website before, and it is done by uh, a very skilled writer. Uh, the website is Organic Consumers Association, and from their, associ- from their website of April 22nd of 2022, there is another very important, excellent article by Alexis Baden-Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R, is bird flu being weaponized? And this talks about the avian H5N1 avian flu. Uh, the that is a very deadly avian flu. Deadly for birds, it rarely affects human beings. Something that we have spoken about in numerous programs is Gilead Sciences. That is a firm that developed uh, remdesivir, uh, a initially touted as a treatment for uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Uh, later, however, it turned out that it was uh, only possibly effective. The uh, WHO, the EU and WHO have severely downgraded their opinion of remdesivir. Uh, we've noted in the past that remdesivir had developed, among other things, a an antiviral agent called Tamiflu, specifically designed to counteract H5N1 should it adapt to human beings. Uh, the top dog, so to speak, with Gilead Sciences, the chairman of the board for many years, was none other than the late Donald Rumsfeld, uh, a key player in uh, Republican White Houses dating back to the mid-70s, and obviously the uh, Secretary of Defense uh, during the Iraq invasion and uh, during George W. Bush's terms. Obviously, uh, Donald Rumsfeld was not in the position he was in because of his medical or scientific expertise. Uh, as we noted, among other things, Donald Trump had the Pentagon stock up on Tamiflu, again designed to counteract a human uh, mutation, a human adaptation of H5N1, which uh, fortunately did not happen globally. And uh, Donald uh, Rumsfeld, I was about to say Donald Trump, Donald Rumsfeld also profited handsomely from his stock holdings in Gilead Sciences while uh, his Pentagon was stockpiling uh, Tamiflu. Uh, there are indications that, in fact, uh, the genetic engineering of H5N1, which we have also spoken about, uh, may have been accomplished, or they were working on that in Ukraine. Russia has alleged that. And in this article, again, by Alexis Baden-Mayer, is bird flu being weaponized? Uh, published by Organic Consumers Association from April 22nd of 2022. There is a long discussion of H5N1 and the gain-of-function manipulations on the virus that causes that under the auspices of Anthony Fauci and other elements of the U.S. medical and military uh, established, uh, the, the med- well, I guess we could call it the medical-military uh, complex. I would note that Anthony Fauci has been a bet noir for the Trump 
right? He is not by any means without blame. I do think that there is uh, perhaps inescapable rhetorical uh, overemphasis on Anthony Fauci. He is no more than a bureaucrat and a cog in the wheel and is apparently doing the bidding of more powerful forces who are operating behind the scenes. However, uh, he has given a green light to gain-of-function manipulations of the H5N1 virus that have made it much more transmissible and may have made it transmissible for uh, two human beings. There was no recorded outbreak of H5N1 in human beings until 1997 in Hong Kong when that former British colony that was conquered during the Opium Wars was handed over to China. That very same year, there was an H5N1 human outbreak in Hong Kong, something that had been predicted by an Australian researcher named Kennedy Shortridge. And Kennedy Shortridge, in turn, is part of a network of scientists uh, who figure prominently not only in manipulations of H5N1 and the game of function uh, manipulations of H, uh, H5N1, but also in biological warfare research and or theorizing. Uh, I take a lot of ribbing, uh, perhaps deservedly, for using the word milieu so often. Uh, there aren't a lot of good words for milieu, perhaps network. Uh, people want to understand why I use the word milieu so much. Uh, the H5N1 concatenation here involves an important group of people who are basically a milieu. There also in this article is a very important discussion of the evolution of metabiota that in turn is hooked up with the EcoHealth Alliance and the research in the uh, Wuhan, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that I had turned the Oswald Institute of Virology, I believe it was, it was set up to take the fall for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, there is a very chilling bit of information about the evolution of metabiota. I'm going to uh, read some of the, well, you could maybe call them highlights, lowlights might be a better uh, term for it, and then we're going to go ahead and read the article. I'm, I'm sure it'll take at least uh, two programs, perhaps three. Uh, as you listen to this, uh, the article... Uh, Keep in mind not only the allegations that were made by the Russians in the UN, of course, that is being poo-pooed as, you know, Russian lies, Russian propaganda, you name it. Uh, bear in mind also the uh, article from an Indian blog that talked about research at the Bharatpur Migratory Bird refuge in India, and that was being conducted by the U.S. Army in the late 1960s or 1970s to see whether migratory birds carried uh, pathogenic microbes. Also, we looked at some material from the book Bitten by Chris Newby, where Daniel Sonnenschein had done research in the late 1960s in the U.S., where Lone Star Picks, a virulent 
biting tick that carries disease, were planted in what was known as the Atlantic Flyway, where migratory birds uh, migrated between North and South America, and subsequently there were established colonies of lone star ticks as far north as Maine, where they had never previously been discovered. Uh, so it is against the research that was uh done in Bharatpur against the allegations made by Russia in in the UN Security Council of April 6th. Anything Russia says now is being roundly dismissed as a lie that is tragic and may prove deadly, and also against the background of the research that was done by Chris Newby and uh, that uh, Daniel Sommenschein was engaged in in the U.S. in the late 1960s. This also falls against the background of the research we have done on Gilead Sciences, their work at the Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, and uh, the research that they were apparently engaged in in Ebola uh, treatment via remdesivir. Uh, the AMRIIB was closed down in early August of 2019 for, by the CDC for unnamed security or uh, sanitation violations. Uh, those, the precise nature of those, has been uh, buried beneath the national security cover. I think predictably, and I think it is unlikely we will ever know the full truth about that. Uh, much of the information that was alleged by Russia vis-a-vis the bio labs in Ukraine has been confirmed from things that, from uh, material that had been online that was taken offline by the U.S. embassy in Ukraine when the Russians invaded. Uh, it was, however, subsubsequently stored by the Wayback Machine and uh, I have put that information in some of our past programs. Now, some key names in this milieu from the Alexis Bodden-Mayer article from 422-2022 is bird flu being weaponized. Now, the emergence of the H5N1 human variant uh, in Hong Kong was eerily predicted by Kennedy Shortridge, the scientist who would discover it. H5N1 did not infect human beings until Shortridge and his colleagues had been studying its human infection potential in their labs for several years. At the time, the natural leap of a flu directly from poultry to humans was so improbable that scientists first suspected that it was the result of contamination from Shortridge's lab. These are excerpts from the article. Now, again, uh, normally H5N1 human infections are extremely rare. H5N1 hardly ever infects people. News about highly pathogenic avian influenza usually leads with how deadly it is. Rarely is it mentioned that the disease hardly ever infects people. H5N1 kills more than half of the people who get it, but H5N1 has circled the globe for decades, and there have been only 860 human infections worldwide, and that again in a period of decades. And more about the uh, rarity of human infections by uh, H5N1. There has never been an H5N1 pandemic, and no human infection with H5N1 bird flu has ever been identified in the U.S. 
That is an extraordinary safety record given how filthy U.S. factory farms and slaughterhouses are and how fast the infection spreads among crowded birds. So far in 2022, 29 states have reported outbreaks of bird flu in 213 flocks, resulting in the culling of nearly 31 million birds, including almost 5% of egg-laying hens. In 2015, it was even worse, with 50 million birds culled, but there wasn't a single human case. Uh, now, Anthony Fauci, again, is the person who has green-lighted game-of-function research on H5N1, and we're going to talk about the various members of this milieu uh, at the end of this meeting of excerpts. Anthony Fauci has made significant investments in game-of-function research to give H5N1 pandemic potential, making it easily transmissible from person to person, and Bill Gates chipped in, too. In February 2006, Fauci convened a one-day in-house NIAID Influenza Research Summit to identify influenza research priorities. In September, he opened up the topic to a 35-member Blue Ribbon Panel on Influenza Research that included uh, Ron Fouchier and Yoshihira Kawaoke. Uh, K-A-W-A-O-K-A, I may be butchering the pronunciation more about uh, Ron Fouchier and uh, Yoshihiro Kawaoke later, those are two of the members. The Blue Ribbons panel doesn't mention game-of-function experiments, but Fauci gave them grants to do just that. Ron Fouchier and Yoshiro Kawaoke, now infamous game-of-function research, uh, actually one more time, Ron Fouchier and Yoshiro Kawaoke's now infamous game-of-function research showed that through lab manipulation, H5N1 could be altered to become highly transmissible among humans via airborne infection. H5N1 H5N1 didn't cause disease in humans until this potential had been studied in the lab for several years. Fauci had been funding Kawaoke and Fouchier's efforts to get bird flu to leap to humans since 1990, and their work was connected to what Shortridge was doing in Hong Kong. For seven years prior to the first H5N1 outbreak in 1997, parenthetically in Hong Kong, Fauci had been funding Kawaoke's game-of-function bird flu research at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and Kawaoke's mentor there, Robert G. Webster, was working and publishing with the aforementioned Kennedy Shortridge. Every year, Webster spent three months working with Shortridge at the University of Hong Kong, according to this profile of Webster, which mentions Kawaoke, as his publisher, Kawaoke, by the capital K-A-W-A-O-K-A. The most eerie connection between Shortridge and Webster's labs is that the closest known relative of the 1997 Hong Kong H5N1 human outbreak was the avian virus that struck Pennsylvania chickens in 1983 that Yoshihiro Kawaoke had studied. According to Time magazine, Webster assigned a young scientist 
Yoshihiro Kawaoki to try to figure out how the 1983 virus transformed itself into such a hot, unquote, pathogen. Kawaoki, now a professor of virology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, compared the genetic structure of viruses from the first and second waves and found only a single, extremely subtle change in the H gene. The two viruses differed by just one nucleotide, one of 1,700 nucleotides that made up that gene. And uh, more about this milieu. There's also a connection... There's also a connection to Ron Fouchier through his mentor at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, Jan de Jong, also a colleague and collaborator of Shortridge and Webster's. Kawaoke's colleague and mentor Robert G. Webster and Fouchier's colleague and mentor Jan de Jong were the first scientists outside of Hong Kong to receive samples of the 1997 H5N1 human outbreak flu from Kennedy Shortridge's lab. De Jong is often credited with being the one who identified the 1997 Hong Kong flu as H5N1, but he did so with a panel of reagents to every type of flu strain yet known, unquote, that had been brought from Webster's lab in Memphis to the National Influenza Center in Rotterdam. Kawioka and Fouchier are of post-biological weapons convention era where the weaponization of pathogens is euphemistically called gain-of-function research, but their older colleagues, De Jong, Shortridge, and Webster came of age prior to 1972, and their mentors were of the pre-biological weapons convention era when virologists knowingly and openly engineered viruses for military purposes. Shortridge and Webster were trained by Frank McFarlane Burnet, B-U-R-M-E-P, who served as the Australian Department of Defense's New Weapons and Equipment Development Committee in the 1940s and 1950s. The Federation of American Scientists lists some of the most chilling things Burnet recommended. Bernay said Australia should develop biological weapons that would work in tropical Asia without spreading to Australia's more temperate population centers. Bernay's observations, quote, and uh, I will quote these directly here, specifically to the Australian situation, the most effective counteroffensive to threatened invasion by overpopulated Asiatic countries would be directed towards the destruction of biological or chemical means of tropical food crops and the dissemination of infectious disease capable of spreading in tropical but not under Australian conditions. Now, in addition, this article also notes a frightening relationship between Metabiota, again, that's the company uh, whose activities in Ukraine were being expedited by Hunter Biden, and uh, that overlaps EcoHealth Alliance, and uh, the selection of Philip Zelico, uh, an interesting individual who uh, headed up the commission, quote, investigating, unquote, the 9-11 attacks, and uh 
was less than vigorous in so doing. He was uh, cited by, among others, Peter Dale Scott in his uh, books The American Deep State and The Road to 911 as having had some key emissions in his report. Uh, Philip Zellico also uh, implemented in 2002 a doc- basically a document he crafted a document that implemented the recommendations that were made by the uh, Committee for a, a, a New American Century, uh, by the, the Project for a New American Century, excuse me, in their Rebuilding American Defenses paper. They recommended, among other things, that genetically engineered biological weapons could become a politically useful tool, unquote. And it was Philip Zellico that encoded basically uh, transferred the recommendations of uh, PNAC's uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses uh, into national security policy in 2002. And again, he was the guy selected to write, to head up the commission that, quote, investigated, unquote, the September 11th attacks, uh, as I've said, that might be appropriately termed the Omission Commission. It was that same Philip Zellico whom we uh, discussed in, among other programs for the record, 1190, that was selected to head up a commission to look into the origins of the coronavirus. And it turns out that the people who uh, basically helped to uh, come together to create Methabiopa, originally a non-profit called the Global Viral Forecasting Initiative. Uh, they were involved with the funding of the commission to be headed up by Philip Zellico. Again, excerpting the Alexis Bodden-Mayer paper. In 2008, Google.org committed $30 million to virus hunting and game-of-function research on potential pandemic pathogens through a project it called Predict and prevent. At least 5.5 million of that went to Dr. Nathan Wolf's nonprofit Global Virus Forecasting Initiative, which was soon to become the for-profit Metabiaba. One more time. At least 5.5 million of that went to Dr. Nathan Wolf's nonprofit Global Viral Forecasting Initiative, which was soon to become the for-profit Metabiaba. Other GBFI funders at the time included the Skull Foundation, which also gave $5.5 million, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Merck Research Laboratories, and the U.S. Department of Defense. When the GBFI became the for-profit Metabiopa, Google Ventures continued to invest. In addition, it created a business partnership with Metabiopa, quote, offering its big data expertise to help the company serve its customers and insurers, government agencies, and other organizations by offering them forecasting and risk management tools. In other words, they sell pandemic insurance. Uh, as we noted, by the way, one of the emails on Hubbard Biden's laptop described Medabiaba as being to the Department of Agriculture as Palantir was to the CIA. Palantir, the alpha predator of the electronic surveillance uh, landscape, headed up by uh, uber-reactionary Peter Peel, a Trump backer. And I would note that the current director of national intelligence, Abel Haynes, worked as a consultant to Palantir uh, during the Trump administration. She also was a key participant in Event 201 in October of 2019 that discussed, again, just hypothetically, uh, a 
coronavirus caused global pandemic that would rend the social, political, and economic fabric of every nation on earth. And coincidentally, not uh, two months later, that is exactly what happened. Uh, more about uh, Methylapa. When the GVFI became the for-profit uh when the GVFI became the for-profit Methabiopa, uh, no, um, let me uh, go back and read more about this. Actually, no, we, we, we've already read that section here. When the GVFI became the for-profit Methabiopa, Google Ventures continued to invest. In addition, it created a business partnership with Methabiopa, quote, offering its big data expertise to help the company serve its customers or insurers, government agencies, and other organizations by offering them forecasting and risk management tools. In other words, they sell pandemic insurance. Now that Methabiopa has gotten caught up in the COVID origins scandal, its original investors, Eric Schmidt of Google, Jeffrey Skoll of eBay, Rajiv Shah of the Rockefeller Foundation, formerly USAID director for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, chipped in to fund the COVID Commission Planning Group, a whitewash led by Philip Zellico, who gave us the 9-11 Commission cover-up. So, again, many of the key funders of what was to become Metabiotic, originally a non-profit GVFI. Again, Eric Schmidt of Google, Jeffrey Skoll of eBay, Rajiv Shah of the Rockefeller Foundation, formerly USAID director for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They chipped in to fund the COVID Commission Planning Group, headed up by Philip Zellico. It's not mentioned here that another of the funders was none other than Charles Koch, a key backer of uh, Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump. Uh, now, another thing that is critical about this, as we noted in some of our discussions of the links between Metabiopa and the EcoHealth Alliance, and something we, that we spoke about uh, many times in connection with EcoHealth Alliance, Again, that is the main organization involved with funding the research at uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And its primary funders are the Pentagon and USAID, and its science and medical advisor is David Franz. Uh, I identified him as the commanding officer at Fort Detrick. He was the commanding officer of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. That is, at this point in time, arguably the most important part of uh, Fort Detrick, but not necessarily the commander of Fort Detrick per se. But it turns out that uh, he, as a an employee of Southern Research, had been fundamentally involved in the encapsulation research of the anthrax bacteria that was at Fort Detrick and that was used in the anthrax attacks of 2001. Those were pinned on a uh, worker named Bruce Ivins at Fort Detrick, who then conveniently committed, committed suicide. One of the things we spoke about in connection with the aforementioned book Bitten by Chris Newby was the, uh, the belief on the part of some Fort Detrick veterans whom she worked with, uh, that their colleague Bruce Ivins had been framed for the anthrax attacks. 
We've also, in a number of programs, including, and especially for the record, 1128, looked at an article from 2002 in Vanity Fair called The Message in the Anthrax that uh, notes how uh, Stephen Hatfield, never indicted, by the way, for the anthrax attacks, was long viewed as a person of interest, but everybody in the national security establishment basically said, nah, don't worry about him. Uh, the suspicion in these quarters is is that Stephen Hatfield is a U.S. intelligence officer, and as such, would be completely beyond the law. They basically, the Pentagon, CIA, etc., alphabet soup, does whatever they want. The law does not touch them. But it is more than a little interesting in light of the fact that the anthrax attacks led to a an exponential increase in the number of BSL-4 labs in the U.S., up to 12 I think there had previously only been two. It was the anthrax attacks that did that, and the anthrax that was used in those attacks, a very sophisticated, weaponized anthrax that had been, quote, encapsulated, unquote, was developed by David Franz when he was working at Southern Research. So again, uh, in connection with H5N1, again, the milieu, Ron Fouchier, uh, his supervisor, Jan Dijon, uh, the aforementioned Yoshihiro Kawaioki, uh, Kennedy Shortridge, and, uh, also Robert Webster, and, uh, the, and Frank McFarlane Burnet, uh, in Australia. These are people who are heavily involved with H5N1 research, including game and function research, and Kennedy Shortridge had predicted that the close proximity of humans and, uh, animals in, uh, South China would lead to some sort of zoonosis outbreak in China. Then surprisingly, surprisingly, uh, not necessarily, but in 1997, the year of the handover of Hong Kong from Great Britain to China, there was an outbreak of human H5N1. So again, bearing in mind the program, the, the, the material from numerous programs about Gilead Sciences, the development of Tamiflu, the stockpiling of Tamiflu, again developed to combat a human H5N1 outbreak that never uh, materialized. Donald Trump profited handsomely from the Pentagon's purchase of that. That is to be reflected against the background, uh, reflected on against the background of this, again, the milieu of Anthony Fauci, Ron Fouchier, his mentor, Jan Dijon, uh, Yoshihiro Kawaioki, Robert Webster, Kennedy Shortridge, and also, uh, Frank McFarlane Bernay, people inextricably linked with game of function research and also biological warfare. And again, that is a milieu. So those are some of the highlights, maybe lowlights would be a better word, certainly is depressing. And now I'm going to begin a reading of this very important article. We will, uh, this will certainly take, uh, the rest of this program and, and uh, most of the next, uh, we will also recap some of the information about uh, the April 6th hearing at the UN and uh, the program at the Bharatpur Migratory Bird Refuge in India in the late 60s, uh, funded by the Army, and also uh, the Daniel Salmonshan project of uh, putting lone star picks on the Atlantic Flyway and the subsequent uh, appearance of well-established lone star pick colonies as far north as Maine. So we will come back to that uh, later in this program. So, 
By Alexis Bob Mayer from the Organic Consumers Association of April 22nd of 2022, Is Bird Flu Being Weaponized? There's been a lot of talk about the conflict in Ukraine causing the release of dangerous pathogens, including highly pathogenic avian influenza H5N1 from U.S.-funded biolabs. This isn't the first time that H5N1 bioweapon spheres have gripped Ukraine. In 2009, when the flu broke out in Ukraine, the official story is that it was H1N1, rumors circulated that it was H5N1 sprayed via vaccines or aerial spraying. Making the whole H5N1 saga even sketchier is its origin story in the late 1990s. The emergence of the virus in 1997 in Hong Kong was eerily predicted by Kennedy Shortridge, the scientist who would discover it. H5N1 didn't infect humans until Shortridge and his colleagues had been studying its human infection potential in their labs for several years. One more time, because this is critical. Making the whole H5N1 saga even sketchier is its origin story in the late 1990s. The emergence of the virus in 1997 in Hong Kong, parenthetically, the very year of the handover from Hong Kong from Britain to China, was eerily predicted by Kennedy Shortridge, the scientist who would discover it. H5N1 did not infect humans until Shortridge and his colleagues had been studying its human infection potential in their labs for several years. At the the time, the natural leap of a flu directly from poultry to humans was so improbable that scientists first suspected that it was the result of contamination from Shortridge's lab. The 1997 H5N1 outbreak in Hong Kong was the first flu to be diagnosed by PCR pest. In the next section, does this scenario sound familiar? I have documented all of that below, but there are several even more obvious reasons why, if there is ever a human H5N1 outbreak or vaccination push, we'll know we're in the midst of another pandemic. 1. H5N1 hardly ever infects people. News about highly pathogenic avian influenza usually leads with how deadly it is. Rarely is it mentioned that the disease hardly ever infects people. H5N1 kills more than half the people who get it, but H5N1 has circled the globe for decades, and there have only been 860 human infections worldwide. There has never been an H5N1 pandemic, and no human infection with H5N1 bird flu has ever been identified in the United States. That is an extraordinary safety record, given how filthy U.S. factory farms and slaughterhouses are, and how fast the inspection, the infection spreads among crowded birds. So far in 2022, 29 states have reported outbreaks of bird flu in 213 flocks, resulting in the culling of nearly 31 million birds, including almost 5% of egg-laying hens. In 2015, it was even worse with 50 million birds culled, but there wasn't a single human case. 3. 
H5N1 is not transmitted person to person. There are only a handful of, quote, possible, unquote, cases worldwide. That is how the CDC puts it. My research suggests that virus hunters like the Gates Foundation's Scott Dowell have stretched the truth in their search for transmissible H5N1. Regardless, the CDC says there is no evidence from those possible cases that spread one more time. Regardless, the CDC says there is no evidence from those possible cases that spread could be sustained beyond a single transmission. Four, there are no food safety risks associated with H5N1. If farm workers and meat packers don't get bird flu in filthy factory farms or slaughterhouses, it's no surprise the rest of us don't get bird flu from eating raw eggs or handling raw chicken. Five, Anthony Fauci has made significant investments in game-of-function research to give H5N1 pandemic potential, making it easily transmissible from person to person, and Bill Gates chipped in too. In this article, I lay out the evidence that, one, Fauci and Gates funded the weaponization of H5N1. Two, Fauci's H5N1 research is ongoing, and is being done all over the world, including in Pentagon-funded biolabs in Ukraine. Three, some of the scariest, most scandal-played corporations on the planet are involved in the Ukraine biolabs, from our millions against Monsanto nemesis Bayer, to the likes of Battelle, B-A-T-T-E-L-L-E, Medibiopa, and Southern Research, biodefense contractors variously linked to the Biden family, the origins of COVID-19, and the 2001 anthrax attacks. Four, the U.S. has already authorized and stockpiled a human H5N1 vaccine. Tamiflu, by the way, is a treatment, not a vaccine. Continuing. Christian Westbrook at IceAgeFarmer.com is warning that bird flu will be the next human pandemic and that the catastrophe is being engineered to usher in the post-meat, post-farmer world that Bill Gates aspires to. Again, I don't know that's what he says, but again, put the question mark by that. As Alexis Bob Mayer then notes, continuing, I sincerely hope he's wrong, but it's hard to be optimistic when people like Robert Redfield, who was CBC director under Trump and is known for his suspicion that COVID-19 originated in a lab, are coming out of the woodwork to make the same eerie prediction. We looked at Robert Redfield in uh, the June 2021 Vanity Fair article. And uh, again, he is an advocate, basically a uh, an exponent of the lab leak theory. Continuing the next section, Fauci and Gates funded the weaponization of H5N1. Uh, by the way, you know, Bill Gates himself has some very dark things about him. Uh, that, too, has been, I think, exaggerated by Team Trump and their enablers, you know, talking about, you know, microchips being injected into people's bloodstreams via vaccines and so forth. There is no need to do that. People can be tracked very effectively by a number of different technologies, including and especially the very smartphones they think are so important and so delightful. Uh, basically, those things are very effective surveillance devices. 
but again, I think, uh, the gross exaggeration, much of it, frankly, of, you know, 911 controlled demolition, uh, ludicrousness, uh, has unfortunately, uh, worked for the benefit of, uh, Bill Gates and that there are some very insidious things about him, but not putting microchips in vaccines. Continuing here. Fauci and Gates funded the weaponization of H5N1. Fauci and Gates figured out how to get scientists to participate in biological weapons research with a clean conscience. They pay them to, one, believe pandemics are caused by pathogens that don't infect humans, two, use genetic engineering and synthetic biology to, quote, predict, unquote, how those pathogens will infect humans. In this 2006 piece, The Science, How a Human Pandemic Could Start, Scott Dowell wrote, quote, while rare instances of H5N1 passing from person to person have been documented, there is no indication that it can do so efficiently. That could change. A series of mutations or a genetic reassortment event, a type of gene swapping among viruses, could enable, enable H5N1 to spread efficiently among humans, triggering a pandemic. H5N1 may evolve into something that's easily spread through coughing, sneezing, or contact with contaminated hands, unquote. In his wisdom, Fauci decided to see if he could make that happen in the lab. As director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, or NIAID, Fauci commissioned two gain-of-function research teams with grants titled Pandemic Potential of H5N1 Influenza Viruses and, quote, Understanding the Emergence of Highly Pathogenic Avian Influenza Viruses. Gates chipped in, too, with grants 48339 and OPPGH5383 from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In parentheses, Ice Age Farmers Westbrook found a lot more documentation of Gates' funding of -of gain-of-function research to make highly pathogenic avian influenza even more pathogenic and transmissible. The scientists Fauci chose to lead the H5N1 teams, Ron Fouchier at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, and Yoshihiro Kawaoki at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Tokyo, were scientists Fauci had funded since 1990 under grants with titles including Influenza Virus Assembly. In February of 2006, Fauci convened a one-day in-house, quote, NIAID Influenza Research Summit to identify influenza research priorities. In September, he opened up the topic to a 35-member, quote, blue-ribbon panel on influenza research, unquote, that included Fouchier and Kawaoke. The blue-ribbon panel's report doesn't mention gain-of-function experiments, but Fauci gave them grants to do just that. Fouchier and Kawaoke's now infamous gain-of-function research showed that, through lab manipulation, H5N1 could be altered to become highly transmissible among humans via airborne infection. And again, we've spoken about the uh, gain-of-function research on H5N1 in a number of programs early in the series on the BioSciap apocalypse dealing with the uh, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. 
COVID-19. Continuing, next section. Did Fauci and Gates weaponized H5N1 end up in Ukraine? In this video from Ice Age Farmer, and then, by the way, there are links in the written description, Christian Westbrook talks about Russia's claim that the U.S. funded Ukraine experiments with engineered strains of bird flu that could kill 50% of humanity. Russia's accusation was presented to the United Nations. Russia's information on U.S. funding of pathogen research in Ukraine was gleaned from public sources. One more time, because anything Russia says now is being, you know, oh, that's lies, that's propaganda. And if you say something that comes from Russia, then you're automatically a Russian propagandist or a Russian dupe or a Russian agent, you name it. Uh, Cold War 2.0 is being accompanied by McCarthyism 2.0, and the man is it kicking in. Russia's accusation was presented to the United Nations. Russia's information on U.S. funding of pathogen research in Ukraine was gleaned from public sources. Robbie Martin of Media Roots Radio has compiled the documentation in a searchable database housed by our hidden history. Martin did a great podcast on the subject, quote, Is the U.S. making weapons under the guise of biodefense in Ukraine and elsewhere? with Gumby. And again, there are links in this. As Igor Kirillov, the head of the nuclear, biological, and chemical protection troops of the Russian Armed Forces, has reported, the Pentagon-funded pathogen projects in Ukraine were labeled UP for Ukraine project and given numbers starting with UP1. Currently, the project lead for U.S.-funded H5N1 research in Ukraine, the Pentagon's defense Threat Reduction Agency, or DPRA, refers to it as UP4, or Ukraine Project 4, is Denise Muzika, M-U-Z-Y-K-A. This is all very well documented, and the U.S. has not denied it, although it insists it is in full compliance with the Biological Weapons Convention. Ukraine is a hub for Pentagon Biolab funding, and biotech and pharmaceutical companies are going where the government contracts are. Our millions against Monsanto Nemesis Bayer is sidling up to the trough, too. Uh, we will continue with the reading of this article in our next program. Uh, do remember uh, the various links I've spoken about, uh, including the Patreon site where I can basically cover a lot more material than I can in a weekly one-hour broadcast. Uh, also note the comments that are uh, made by Terrafractal mostly and sometimes by other people. Again, there is way too much going on for me to possibly cover it in a one-hour broadcast. That's why Patreon and the comments, made, most of them made by Terrafractal, are very important. I believe the link enabling you to subscribe is no longer operative. You can just go to the comments themselves and visit the site on a regular basis. In any event, this concludes for the record program number 1248, The Ukraine War Meets the Oswald Institute of Virology, Part 1. This is being recorded on June 10th of the year 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun. Good evening, my fellow Americans. First, I should like to express my gratitude to the radio and television networks for the opportunities they have given me over the years to bring reports and messages to our nation. My special thanks go to them for the opportunity of addressing you this evening.
three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Like every other, like every other citizen, I wish the new president and all who will labor with him Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. Our people expect their president and the Congress to find essential agreement on issues of great moment, the wise resolution of which will better shape the future of the nation. My own relations with the Congress, which began on a remote and tenuous basis, when long ago a member of the Senate appointed me to West Point, have since ranged to the intimate during the war and immediate post-war period, and finally to the mutually interdependent during these past eight years. In this final relationship, the Congress and the administration have, on most vital issues, cooperated well. To serve the nation, the nation good, rather than mere partisanship, and so have assured that the business of the nation should go forward. So my official relationship with the Congress ends in a feeling, on my part, of gratitude that we have been able to do so much together. We now stand ten years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely, and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle 
with liberty the stake. Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy balance between the cost and hoped-for advantages, balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable, balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual, balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance in progress, lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, 
We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research, partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. Another factor in maintaining balance involves the element of time. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Such a confederation must be one of equals. The weakest must come to the conference table with the same confidence as do we, protected as we are by our moral 
economic, and military strength. That table, though scarred by many fast frustrations, past frustrations, cannot be abandoned for the certainty agony of, of the battlefield. Disarmament with mutual honor and confidence is a continuing imperative. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. Because this need is so sharp and apparent, I confess that I lay down on my official responsibilities in this field with a definite sense of disappointment. As one who has witnessed the horror and the lingering sadness of war, as one who knows that another war could utterly destroy this civilization, which has been so slowly and painfully built over thousands of years, I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. Happily, I can say that war has been avoided. Steady progress toward our ultimate goal has been made, but so much remains to be done. As a private citizen, I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. So in this, my last good night to you as your president, I thank you for the many opportunities you have given me for public service in war and in peace. I trust in that, in that, in that service, you find some things worthy. As for the rest of it, I know you will find ways to improve performance in the future. You and I, my fellow citizens, need to be strong in our faith that all nations under God will reach the goal of peace with justice. May we be ever unswerving in devotion to principle, confident but humble with power, diligent in pursuit of the nation's great goals. To all the peoples of the world, I once more give expression to America's prayerful and continuing aspiration. We pray that peoples of all faiths, all races, all nations, may have their great human needs satisfied, that those now denied opportunity shall come to enjoy it to the full, that all who yearn for freedom may experience its few spiritual blessings. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility, that all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the sources, scourges of poverty disease and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it. Thank you and good night.